series on relationships. And if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, obviously I won't be teaching next Sunday because Brother Sharm will be here. But in our first two lessons, we spoke about, firstly, the need for us to have an appropriate view of ourselves. Not an inflated, ego-driven view, but in line with how the Scripture would have us to see ourselves, which is as the children of God, loved by Him and precious in His sight. Last weekend, we considered what it means to be a friend and what the Bible says about friendship and the role of friendship in our lives. And uh, as I was reflecting on that lesson, I thank God for good friends. Amen. Thank God for friends who are faithful, that have stood the test of time, friends that God has used to encourage me, to strengthen me and to challenge me and to change me. Amen. God, God puts people in our lives for His purpose. Sometimes we just think they're friends because we like them, they're like us, we're having a great time. But God has a way of using our relationships to bring about His will. Amen. Now, as we move in these next few lessons, um, we're going to be teaching about marriage, about family, about parenting, about communication. So covering all that, we should be finished by about August. But um, I want to establish a couple of things before we go any further. Firstly, sin is destructive. Sin damages lives, and that means that it damages relationships, including marriages and families. And uh, when we came to Jesus, all of us, everybody say, that's me. All of us came to Jesus broken. Not necessarily in the same ways, but all broken. Amen. And so for some of us, that brokenness might mean broken marriages. It might mean broken families. It might mean dysfunctional relationships between parents and children. It might mean other areas that are not exactly how God designed them to be. I say that because it's important we understand that we are dealing with the present. We are dealing with the right now. So if you have been divorced, been separated, you're a single parent, you're a blended family, if you're not familiar with that expression, it kind of basically means your family's made up of pieces that didn't necessarily start the journey together but are together now. If you're in a foster family situation or any other kind of background, You are our family, and you are God's family. Amen. And it's important we understand that. So as we teach on these areas, you may find yourself already aware. You may find yourself becoming aware that some of the things we teach in your story don't necessarily line up exactly how they should. Please do not allow that to become a source of condemnation, but rather recognize that all of us are in a process of becoming doesn't matter if you can trace Christianity back to the ark. If you can trace your DNA back to Noah, all of us are growing and changing. Amen. So please, you know, comparison, comparison is a tool of the devil. Because when you compare yourself with someone, I've taught this many times, but when you compare yourself with somebody else, there are only two outcomes. One is that you'll think you're better, which leads to pride. The other one is that you'll think you're so much worse, which leads to failure and depression and condemnation. Neither of those are of God. So when we compare ourselves with anything, we compare ourselves with the Scripture. That way we are trying to become what Jesus wants us to be, not, as the old expression used to say, keeping up with the Joneses. We can say that because there's nobody here whose last name is Jones, I don't think. If you are, we're not trying to keep up with you. It's okay. Also, as we teach, let's keep the focus on ourselves. We all need to change and grow. Please don't turn to each other on the drive home from church today 
and say, I hope you're listening to Pastor this morning. That is not the purpose of these lessons. Please do not do that. I, I, every time you teach on relationships or marriages, something happens to people's elbows. Particularly married couples, they get this twitch where the pastor says something, are you listening? And they just jab somebody. Let's take it on board. Let's apply it to ourselves. If you hear lots of things that your spouse needs to do, you may be right. Talk to Jesus about it. Because when it comes to changing your spouse, there's how much you can do and there's how much Jesus can do. And who does the better job there? Amen. You try to change your spouse, you're going to spend a lot of time in tense environments. Amen. So, with that platform, let's, let's start by talking about marriage. Matthew chapter 19. Appreciate Daniel helping me on the projector. Starting at verse 4. Jesus speaking said, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain or they two shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, there's a reasonably good chance this passage of Scripture was referenced during a wedding ceremony. I've had the privilege of performing, I had to count, I've done 14 weddings so far in my time as pastor, which is basically one a year. Uh, not that it lines up that way. Sometimes there's been more than one in a year. But each couple that come and stand before you during a wedding ceremony have their own story. They have their own background. Uh, I've, I've done some weddings for some of our Burmese brethren where I've had to do a wedding with an interpreter, where I'm hoping that they're repeating after me when I ask them to repeat after me because I've got no idea what's going on. I've done weddings where people that have grown up in church have got married. I've done weddings where people that have come into the church and already in a relationship with kids have got married because they want to make things right in the sight of God, which is fantastic. Everybody comes and stands together and they make vows as a part of that ceremony. And each of them comes with an idea of what being married looks like. Any married person can say amen. These ideas of what a marriage looks like are usually influenced by culture and by observation of their own parents or extended family. Sometimes these ideas are influenced by romantic happily ever after movies or novels, which is probably the most unrealistic of them all. Uh, happily ever after only happens in Disney, and even then I'm not sure it actually happens. But as marriage progresses, you begin to realize that you may have different ideals and that you're going to have to work together to establish your relationship. Matthew 19, 4 and 6, which we read, gives us three components that are necessary in a marriage. The first one is leaving. We need to leave our birth family and begin a new life or a new family together. That leaving is not necessarily measured in kilometers. But it's leaving in the sense of identity. You don't suddenly forget who your parents are or your siblings, but it's about now there is another primary relationship in our lives. And all other relationships are secondary to that. We, you know, living with your parents might be okay in the short term, but it's probably unhealthy after a while. I know that varies from house to house. Some people's parents you can stay with a long time, others, a couple of hours is about all you can handle. But we, we talk about marrying into a family. But we also need to realize that we marry out as well. 
When you marry somebody, you get their family. It's a package deal. They don't always tell you that, but that's how it works. So you get all the aunts, all the uncles, all the cousins, the good ones, the crazy ones. You get them all. But your primary relationship in a marriage is the husband and wife, and then from the family that will possibly come from that. You need to understand when you get married that your spouse now matters more than your parents, more than anybody else in the whole world. The second part of our text talks about cleaving. And the, when you look at the original meaning of that word, it basically means sticking like glue. Basically what it means. There is a coming together that God designed never to be separated. Divorce was never God's idea. And uh, if, if you have that experience in your life, that's not about condemnation. That's the consequences of sin. But when we're born again and we're serving God, divorce is never God's idea. The third part is becoming one flesh, combining two lives into one, sharing dreams, disappointments, experiences, and ultimately serving God together. I'll get into this maybe in future lessons, but if you are single and planning or hoping to get married, please let me be as blunt as I can be. If you plan on serving God, please do not think about marrying somebody who does not share that plan. You will end up being married to somebody and you have a huge part of your life that you do not share with them. And the statistics of a believer marrying a non-believer and converting that believer after marriage are very, very small. We'll get onto that later on. If you think that's a bit strong, come see me afterwards and I'll explain why it's not. Marriage is for life. When you choose to get married, you, do need, you need to do so soberly with much prayer and consideration about who you are choosing to marry. I've heard it said that you cannot help who you fall in love with. Now, that's not really an accurate statement. It's not a completely accurate statement. We do recognize that feelings can develop for somebody, but you choose what you do with those feelings. You choose whether you feed them or you starve them. You choose whether you put yourself in environments where they will become more intense or you put daylight between you and that individual. Only in the movies do you look across a crowded room and time stands still as your destiny appears before you. The media has a lot to answer for when it comes to messed up ideas about relationships. Amen. It is definitely true that you can click with somebody almost straight away. But it's probably firstly infatuation and later love. And you need to keep your brain involved in the process, which is not easy with our emotions. When I, My wife's upstairs, so I'm not going to get myself into trouble. But when I met my wife at National Youth Camp way back at Easter in 1992, which is in the last century, I had no intentions of looking for a possible bride. In fact, I approached that camp with the complete opposite idea. So to a certain degree... The friendship that formed that weekend did just happen. In hindsight, God's fingerprints were on it. But when I returned home to North Queensland and she returned home to Melbourne, I had to make a choice what I did with that connection. Do I begin to old school, write letters, and then eventually make telephone calls? Your emotions can certainly reach a point where they are hard to control, but you have to give them that opportunity in the first place. Amen. That's possibly a whole subject for another lesson. And I think we might be doing some teaching with the young people about that later in the year. The roles of men and women in society have not or are not always consistent with the Word of God. Cultures and societies throughout history have had patterns and mindsets about what it means to be a man, 
what it means to be a woman, which includes such things as this is what men do and this is what women do, whether it's tasks, careers, education, family roles, etc. They, they vary when you travel across the world. It is contrary to the popular views today, simply biology, that men and women are created to be different from each other. Amen. A man's body is not created to carry a child. A woman's body is. As part of God's creative design, this means that not only does a woman's body have the capacity to bear a child or the physical capability, but God has also made them to be more maternal, which means caring and nurturing in their emotions and thinking processes. Both parents, I hope, love their children, but there is a difference in the way they interact with them. That's how we are made. The Lord, to give me an example of this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in the Old Testament, when God was communicating with Israel and they were being unfaithful to Him and rebellious and disobedient and idol worshipping and everything they were basically doing was wrong, He spoke to them and He said, can a woman forget her sucking child? He did not say, can a parent forget their child? He acknowledged there is a specific connection between a mother and a child. And then he went on to say, even if that was possible, I will not forget you. But he was using that to communicate possibly one of the strongest bonds there is in humanity between a mother and a child. God has designed us, again, very out of fashion these ideas today, but God's not too interested in fashion. God has designed us to be different physically, emotionally, and psychologically. Anybody that's been married for more than about 20 minutes knows that we do not think the same. It's not right, it's not wrong, it's simply different. We are made differently. Sometimes it seems like our minds are in different languages. But it's not, again, it's not about right and wrong. And it's where there are differences, there are design and creative differences between men and women, but there is absolutely, fundamentally, no difference whatsoever in value. And that's where sometimes the issue becomes a problem. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through to 28. If you read the epistle to the Galatians, you'll find that Paul is writing and dealing with the, I guess confusion might be the right word, between the relationship between New Testament Christians and the Old Testament law. And wanting them to understand that when we are in Christ in the New Testament, we're not under the law of Moses anymore. It is different now. And as part of that, in verse 26, he says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, whether you're Jews, Greeks, whatever. Then he says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So it's not about ethnicity or gender. It's about whether or not we've been born again. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what this means is that in our relationships with Jesus as individuals, everybody say me, it doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what your social status is or whether you're a man or a woman. You're his child. That's what matters. Amen. Unfortunately, when you place something that God designed into the hands of sinful humanity, it tends to get twisted. Just about, it doesn't tend to, it always gets twisted. 
Mankind, since it has been sinful, has always twisted the things that God designed. Men have taken their leadership role, historically, and we'll get to that shortly, and also taken the differences between male and female, and in many eras and cultures, relegated women to second-class citizens. That's not godly. And if you read the Apostle Paul's letters, you'll see that he addresses some of that. To give you an idea of how God feels about it, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. This is the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And in this passage, he refers back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Joel. And he says, It shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Sons and daughters, servants and handmaidens, both male and female, are going to have the Spirit of God poured out upon them with no distinction. Now, I'm going to touch on this some more as we go along. But... Any time, and this, this is important we understand this, any time you see one person submitting to another person's authority in the Scripture, and submission is biblical, let me make that very clear, it is always based upon relational position, never upon gender or value. I'll say that again. When you see submission in a biblical setting, it is always based upon the relationship between the one submitting to the other, not upon whether they're a man or a woman, or more value or less value. It's a powerful principle that we need to understand because sometimes we think, well, you know, I have to do this because they're more important, or they have to do this because they're less important. That's not of God. When the Bible teaches us, and when we hopefully, and we'll get to this in a later lesson, but when your children, as parents, when your children obey and honor you, it is not because you are more valuable than your children. How many parents think they're more valuable than their children? None of us do. We love our children. But it is because you are their parent and you have the responsibility of their well-being and training. So the submission is not based on value. It's based on relationship. When you go to school, if you're sensible, you'll submit to the teacher because of their position, not because they're more valuable than you are. When you go to work, it's the same thing. When you submit to the boss at work, it's not because he's more valuable. He has a responsibility. You have a responsibility. And as we'll get into in these next couple of lessons, when a wife submits herself to her husband, it is not because he is more valuable or because she is a woman. It is because of his responsibility for her in that relationship. The Scripture teaches us to obey them that are over us in spiritual authority. Are they more valuable than you? No, absolutely not. But they have responsibility. Scripture teaches us to honor, and even in some Scripture, to double honor those who minister the Word of God to us. Why? Because they're more valuable? No, because of the position they have in that relationship. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you're not important unless you're this, you're that. That's not accurate. It's about understanding relationship. Amen. And if you've got any questions about that, come and see me. Amen. Bless the Lord. Jesus died for each and every soul. None of us were cheaper than others. None of us were discount. None of us cost more. We all cost him everything. 
every single one of us. So male, female, young, old, teacher, student, boss, employee, husband, wife, pastor, saint, whatever. We all cost him everything. Amen. None of us are worth more than any other. But he also, as part of his care for us, gave different responsibilities to people to care for those that he died for. Again, parents, teachers, and so on and so forth. So, let's take a look, first of all, at the role of the Christian husband, because it's easy to give it to the guys first. Amen. The husband is to be the head of the house. Now, the moment you use that expression, some people get a little bit antsy, a little bit prickly. But it's, it's easy to say, but what does it mean? What is it? See, the, the, the issue with understanding a marriage relationship is understanding it through the scriptural view, not through the twisted view in the world. Amen. The authority that God gives a husband is so that he may take care of his responsibilities. It's not so he can be the king of the castle. I had a, a friend some years ago. He had a young son. I think his son was in primary school. And he was, my friend was going away for a, I don't know if it was a weekend or whatever, for work. And he called his son over and he said, now I'm going away for the weekend. It was only semi-serious, but he said to his boy, you need to be the man of the house while I'm away. And his son said, does that mean I get to sit on the couch and tell people what to do? He had some work to do, obviously, on his image as a father. That's what his son thought that dads did. That's a bit like when we had... Uh, the Sunday school team and Brother Benji told us all that his dad sleeps all day but uh, didn't add the fact that his dad works night shift but little kids stood up here and told the whole church my dad sleeps all day it's like thanks very much but he's actually working nights but he, he left that part out so I felt sorry for Brother Grunt but uh, the truth is and here's the thing we have to get the truth is that any authority that God gives to anyone in any position is authority to serve that's what it's about it is never, ever given to be abusive, whether it's verbal, physical, or psychological. The husband is the, sorry, the Lord is the head of the husband, and the husband is the head of the wife. So the husband's first obligation is to be submitted to God. Men, when we are submitted to God and becoming more Christ-like, our relationships with those that God has given us responsibility for will benefit greatly. Why? Because he's the master designer. Marriage was his idea. He wasn't just having to, you know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to introduce marriage and cause humanity endless problems. Marriage was designed to work. God didn't set it up to fail. And if we do it his way, it will work. But there's the key. It's us doing it his way. In fact, when you read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, it seems that as men, one of the main areas in which God measures our relationship with him is by looking over us to see how we are loving our wives as he loves the church. First Peter 3 and 7 says, Likewise, you husbands, and every married man said, That's me. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And we're going to explain that verse a bit later. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That tells me that if I'm not being who I'm supposed to be to my wife, the Lord's hanging up the phone. If I'm not doing my best to be the godly man that he wants me to be, there's a problem in that communication. It says your prayers can be hindered. And when you look up the meaning of that word, it means cut off. I don't want my prayers cut off. I need to know when I pray that he hears me. And so I have to be careful. You see, 
when God gives you that responsibility, it's not about being the king. It's about being carrying the burden of responsibility. Some of the responsibilities that men have is to lead their families spiritually. It's very powerful, but we must lead by example. The issue of absent fathers is a massive problem in our world. And I, I read some statistics. I don't want to try to quote them because I think I'll get them wrong. I didn't put them on my notes. But in the U.S., they have statistics where it was something like one-third of children go to bed at night without their biological father present. That's incredible. And the absence of biological fathers in the lives of children is devastating. The spiritual absence of fathers in the kingdom of God is equally devastating. I'm glad that in this church we have men that worship. We have men that pray. We have men that are doing their best to lead their families. Because men, we have to be physically present for our families, but we also have to be spiritually present and visible. Our families need to see us worship. They need to see us pray. They need to see us give. They need to see us serve. They need to see you forgive. I'm waiting. Can I get one amen? Oh, there's a couple. Amen. They need to see you go to the altar. They need to see you faithful to the house of God. Amen. Men, we need to provide for our families. Second Thessalonians 3 and 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. First Timothy 5 and 8 says, But if any provide not for his own and specifically for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel or somebody who denies the existence of God. We are very, very blessed to live in a country that has government assistance when we are unable to work or when we are struggling to find work. But we need to only ever view that as temporary while we continue to look for work. Government assistance is not employment. We need to always, as men, particularly as fathers, and look, let me be honest, I know that it's not always easy to get a job. It's not about easier heart, it's about effort. We need to be doing what we can, thanking God for the support we may get through the government, but looking to work as well. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. We're going to spend a fair bit of time in this passage in the coming lessons. Twenty-two Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their own husbands in everything. That's next week's lesson. Twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they, shall, they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, 
and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So this is going to be a text that we're going to come back to quite a lot, but there's some overlapping parallels. When I talk about the word parallel, I mean the Lord uses one picture to help us understand another. There's some overlapping parallels that we can learn from our lesson in our lessons on marriage that Scripture gives us. The first one is Christ and the church. You go back in, in earlier chapters of Ephesians, you'll see there's also the head and the body. And finally, there's the husband and the wife. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, even, or in the same kind of fashion, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, men, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I find it very sobering. In case you're unsure of the seriousness of that challenge, the last statement of the verse really brings it home, and gave himself for it. Amen. Now, it's easy for us to say that we understand that to mean that if as husbands we were ever in a situation where we had to lay down our lives for our wives, that we would be willing to do so. The problem is that for most of us, if not all of us, I hope, that situation's very unlikely to occur. And I hope it doesn't occur, but what it does, it leaves us with some theoretical commitment that we're making to a situation that hopefully we'll never face. Now, if you're ever in a life and death situation, I would hope, men, that you would be willing to give your life to protect your wives. But the example of Calvary is being used, not primarily to imply that men should be willing to sacrifice their physical lives for their wives, but the example is given for us that we might understand Philippians 2 and 7 says, speaking of Jesus, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus, in his commitment to the church that he was going to redeem, was selfless. His desires, his well-being, his comfort was put aside for the benefit of those that would become his bride. The love that a husband is called upon to demonstrate to his wife is a selfless love. That's what it's talking about when it says that we need to be willing to give ourselves. It's a love that will cause you to put your wife first, to provide for her and to take care of her. It's that love that makes you willing to go to work day in, day out, without thinking about it. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and I've, I've shared this before, I never even stopped to consider the fact that every morning my dad got up and went to work. I think he used to leave the house about 7.38, used to get home about 6.37, Monday to Friday, every week. I just thought, that's just how it is. No big deal. It's what dads do. Then I had kids of my own. I'm getting up. I'm going to work every day. Coming home every day. And you begin to develop an appreciation for that sacrificial love because the father and a husband who goes to work and earns that income, it's not for new toys for him. At least it shouldn't be, unless you're making lots of extra. Amen. But it's to provide a home for your wife and for your family and to put food on the table. And when you're single, before you get married, if you're employed, sometimes you spend money on whatever you like. When I, I'd like to tell you that before I got married, I was a wise steward of my finances, but I spent my money faster than I could earn it when I was a teenager it came in payday whatever day it was it was gone by that afternoon i was waiting for payday to come around again next week that's not a model that's a that's a warning okay don't don't be like that 
But when you get married, and hopefully you're smarter, but young people, if you're not married, get smart financially now. Trust me, you'll thank me later. Amen. But when you get married, you now have responsibilities. When you go to work, it's not about the new set of golf clubs or the 75-inch plasma screen with the PlayStation hooked up to it. If you're an adult and you're spending too much time on the place, you need to grow up, seriously. That's a word for somebody. If, if your age starts with a two or a three or higher, you need to pack that thing up and sell it. And, well, that went down well. Okay. Not looking for elbows, but there's some wives that are twitching. Amen. You know, a few years ago, very sadly, my wife and I visited a family where there were four young children. The house had hardly any furniture. It was really, really bare. Not much at all in the house at all. Now, listen, sometimes that's how it is, even when you're doing your best. But at this house, in the front room, there was a TV that was nearly the size of the wall and a two-door sports car in the driveway. Do the maths. Husband, wife, four kids. Two-door sports car. That's not selfless. That's selfish. That's not what we are called to be. We are called to put other needs first in our family. Amen. Jesus' example, he put his own will aside. He said, not my will, but thine be done. There's nothing wrong. You know, we all have interests and hobbies, things that cost money, but you put those aside sometimes. He promised to never leave us. You know, one of the best things you can do as a husband is never leave. Be present. He said, I will not leave you comfortless, He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. He promised to take care of us. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? That's his faithfulness. He's he's our model. When it says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, it's not saying, babe, I'd die for you if necessary, so just take that to the bank. It's being willing to sacrifice yourself and put your wife and then your family first. What they need first. Your kids' school uniforms are more important than your golf clubs or your new fishing rod or whatever is your interest. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. Is everybody still awake? It's a little quiet in here. Ephesians 5 and 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. So we've sort of considered the idea of Christ and the church. Now we've got the the example of the head and the body, a man loving his wife as his own body. As Christ cares for the church, it grows in strength and nearness to him. It speaks of more than simply natural provision. We do need to provide food. We do need to provide shelter. But it also speaks of care for the spiritual needs for his church and for our wives. As a man cares for his wife, she should grow in confidence in herself and in closeness to her husband. He ought to want to help her to grow spiritually. Now, don't misunderstand that to be you need to be pointing out everything she's doing wrong. I don't need any of your wives calling me saying, he's driving me nuts since you taught on Sunday morning. Because the next phone call is going to be to you. Let's not make that happen. Amen. But a, a, a godly husband should want to help his wife to grow spiritually as well as to be providing for her naturally. 
as you take care of your own bodies, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we ought to take care of our wives as our own flesh. Why? Because no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Our comfort and our satisfaction is the first thing we naturally think about. Where does all sin come from? Lust of the flesh. Pride of life, lust of the eyes. That's all about me. When we're godly, it's about somebody else first. I mean, we are not hurtful to ourselves. We are not harsh with ourselves. And we do care about how we feel. To cherish, the, the verse 29 talks about the man doesn't hate his own flesh. He nourishes it and cherishes it. To cherish means to protect and to care for and to hold dear. How much you value your marriage, how much you value your wife will be reflected in how you fulfill that scripture. I want to read First Peter 3 and 7 again, and I'm going to try to wrap this up soon. First Peter 3 and verse 7 says, Likewise, your husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. We talked about our prayers not being hindered. To dwell with them speaks of intimacy and closeness. And according to knowledge speaks about understanding. We need to do what we can. We, we think differently, but we need to do what we can to have understanding of our wives and of how God wants us to treat them. Giving honor unto your wife. Don't treat your wife as anything less than yourself. Now, as unto the weaker vessel is an interesting statement because generally, again, it's not a rule, generally men are more physically stronger. Not always a rule. I know that's not... Someone's going to say, well, what about... I don't know, Serena Williams. You know, we're not necessarily always stronger. And some wives are sitting there thinking, yeah, I could take him. Don't worry, I'm stronger than him. Please don't test that out when you get home. Because the reality is, in many ways, women are stronger than men. Any of you men ever given birth? Enough said. Amen. I think that this verse of Scripture, while it may include the general principle of men being physically stronger, it's also a reference to the fact that God expects husbands to protect and to lead their wives. First century culture that the Apostle Paul was dealing with often considered women to be weaker than men in every asset, which is not true. But we honor our wives by protecting her and providing for her. It's as unto the weaker vessel. We're not saying, oh, you're a, you're a weakling, I have to do everything. It's about protecting them. Amen. When you enter into a marriage relationship, there are requirements, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish today, we'll see how we go. There are requirements placed upon you by God as a part of that relationship that were not there before. Men, when you were single, the only spiritual relationship you're responsible for was yours. When I met my wife and we were developing a relationship, I was only responsible for myself. But once I got married and became one flesh in the sight of God, the Lord added a whole new dimension of responsibility. And if you're young and thinking to get married, slow your roll and think about this carefully. My wife still had a personal walk with God, but now it included how she related to me, and it also included how I relate to her. And the Lord added the responsibility to me as a husband of leading my new wife in our marriage and being responsible for her emotionally, physically, and spiritually. That's why Peter says in that verse of Scripture, 
we need to be careful as husbands how we treat our wives that our prayers are not cut off. Colossians 3 and 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. The New Living Translation says, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Men can be harsh. We ought not to be so with our wives. And what does that mean when it's loving and honoring? Does it mean we give our wives everything that they want? Everything We never disagree with them and we just live to make them happy? Please don't any of the ladies say amen. Because that's... I'm going to have to correct you slightly if that's what you think. That's not what it means. It means that when a man is filling the God-intended role for him as a husband, that his power and blessings will flow in his family. It means that there are things that God expects of me as a husband to be and to do that cannot be separated from my individual walk with God. Gentlemen, if you're married, and if you're at odds with your wife, your prayer time is going to be frustrating. You go into the prayer room and think, oh, I've got to talk to the Lord. That woman's driving me nuts. Your prayers aren't going too far because your attitude, your mindset, the whole thing is wrong. You cannot separate how you treat your spouse from your walk with God. They are inseparable in the sight of God. If he made you one flesh, that means when you go to pray, it means he's considering you and your spouse. Amen. There are some things, these, sorry, these are some of the things that I believe we ought to endeavor to be doing and to be becoming. And I'm not going to give you scripture for all of these. I can, but for the sake of time, I Men need to be altar builders. We need to be men of prayer and of the word. Amen. We need to set that in our homes. If we do not get the invisible right, the visible will only lead to frustration and disappointment. You need to pray for yourselves. You need to pray for your marriage. You need to pray for your family. You need to pray for your church. You need to pray for souls. And it's not in my notes, but you need to pray for your pastor. Men, you need to be visible. We don't do things to be seen of others. That's the wrong motive. But there are things people should see us do, particularly in our homes. Men, we've got to be seen in church, in prayer, in worship, and in effort. We need to lead in our homes. You set the thermostat spiritually in your home. That's a man's responsibility. Now, it's a challenge. It's a challenge setting the natural thermostat. Anybody know that trying to get the heating or the temperature just right when you're married is tough? That's why they make cars now with separate air conditioning controls. It's to save marriages. That's why they were designed. Because someone's always hot and someone's always cold. That's the revelation for you there, right there. But as men spiritually, seriously, we are responsible for the temperature in our homes spiritually. What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? What kind of family are we going to be? What kind of family we're not going to be? What kind of church involvement we're going to have? What kind of church attendance we're going to have? That's a man's responsibility. Now, if you're a single parent, it's on you. I'm sorry at this time. We understand that we are different. We, the men are responsible for what goes on in their homes. Sometimes we have to say, hey, let's not be like that. Let's not, let's not be the kind of home where we slice and dice somebody. Let's be the kind of home that God wants us to be. Amen. You're in the natural as men. We make sure, at least I hope you do, that the roof doesn't leak, that the electricity isn't cut off, that the house is secured. Any of you men ever left the door unlocked or a window open and got in trouble for it in the morning? Oh, a couple of us anyway. Some not, not so honest. It's our responsibility 
to make sure that our kids are going to school, that they're eating and sleeping and all those things. Why is it? Because we care about who they are now and what they will become. Spiritually, we have to make sure the roof doesn't leak. We have to make sure the power of God isn't being cut off, that our spiritual house is secure. That means that some things stay in and some things stay out. Husbands, you are responsible for the spiritual diet of your family. It's not in my notes, but that means entertainment, internet, television, movies, music. All of them have spiritual content. You need to be aware of what's going on in your home because God, God's not going to hold your six-year-old responsible. He's going to hold you responsible. And even when that six-year-old becomes a 16-year-old and it gets a bit tougher, you're still responsible for your home. If you won't feed them McDonald's every night of the week, don't give them access to the internet every night of the week because you're feeding them spiritual junk. Amen. I feel very strongly about this because I'm aware of what's out there in this world. You need to guard your children's hearts and minds and spirits. Your family's diet needs to be spiritually healthy and nutritious. And you need to make sure that they're getting educated. Not the times tables, who God is, what God wants, what God doesn't want, what the Word of God says, what is true, what is right, what is holy, what we do, what we don't do. Not just because of a list of rules, but you help them to develop a relationship with God. It's not going to happen by accident. We have a fantastic, and I said this recently, we have a fantastic Sunday school team, but they are not superheroes. They cannot be responsible for our children in one hour on a Sunday morning. If you're a parent, those little souls are your responsibility. You want to be a minister? There's your ministry. You want to be a preacher? There's your congregation. It's your wife and your children. They are your responsibility. Amen. I'm going to close with this. The psalmist told us that brethren in unity was like the anointing oil that flowed from Aaron's head all the way down to the skirt of his garment. As husbands, we control what flows in our homes. We have our hands on the tap and we decide this is the kind of people we're going to be. I'm not talking about being a king or being dictatorial or being some kind of crazy person. I'm talking about being responsible for your home, for your marriage, for your family. Let's stand.